0: Now I'm sitting here with a banana up, my hungry cunt. Sickamoo! I'm coming, you dumb bitch. <laughs>
1: Sick all. Oh! Oh, that's it! That's it! I'm still coming! Still coming! Oh! Oh!
2: Oh, there you did it! Oh! Sickamoo! Oh, my panties are being soaked with love juices. Fuck me, my cunts are sweating and biting. Fuck me like you never fucked me before. God, I'm so ready. Oh, God. Oh, please, take it in. Oh, my. Oh, please. Oh.
1: Welcome to Cinema. I am Josh Hadley. You may know me from Radio Drome, Lost in the Static, and What the Fuck. With me every week will be my male co-host... That would be me, Mike White. You may know me from the
3: movie zine, Cashiers to Cinemart, or the movie podcast, The Projection Booth.
1: And then we also have, to add a little sexiness to the proceedings, we have the beautiful and vivacious Freulein von B.
2: Good evening. I am Fraulein von B. I am a fetishist, occasional educator and lecturer of BDSM and Alternative Lifestyles, and I'm also a member of the Board of Directors of the Diabolique Foundation, which is a charity organization in the greater Philadelphia, Pennsylvania area.
1: What we actually want to do with this show, Cinema will be looking at the past of adult. And when I say the past, I mean we are going to analytically look at the movies that you either secretly watched in the basement if you're older, or you may have never even heard of. The first movie we chose as a group was the 1972 classic Behind the Green Door. Freulein, you said you had a little bit of background on this. Do you want to give the movie's plot?
2: Well, let's see what I can do for you. Uh, Behind the Green Door, as you said, was in is a 1972 feature-length pornographic film, widely considered one of the genre's classics. It was actually the first hardcore film widely released in the United States and is the first feature-length film directed by the Mitchell brothers and started Marilyn Chambers. It was actually adapted from an anonymous short story with the same title, and apparently it just circulated uh, by means of carbon copies, word of mouth, The grapevine. The title of the movie. It's actually, of course, generally since this is porno, it was given an X rating by the MPAA. One of the interesting things about this film is that it is considered the beginning of the golden age of porn. Marilyn Chambers plays the role of Gloria. Starts basically a cafe where you see people starting to lead you into the story where Cook says, "Tell me about the green door." You're introduced to Gloria when she is kidnapped and take it to a sex theater where she is uh, basically placed on display, and she's coerced into these various sex acts with multiple partners in front of a masked audience. Strangely enough, the Mitchell brothers actually make a cameo as the kidnappers. The character, Gloria, is first groped by a bunch of women. Then she is actually um, performing a hetero sex act with Johnny Keys, The whole thing just basically turns into one major orgy thereafter.
3: I think that the scene with Johnny Keys was fairly controversial at the time because it was uh, interracial sex, which was still fairly taboo at the time. Then she goes from him to the um, trapeze act where she is uh, fornicating with a guy beneath her. Is that right? Because I was trying to tell there aren't a whole lot of long shots in this film there's a lot of mediums and medium close-ups and medium shot but not a whole lot of long shots so i can see everything that's happening on screen but she's got one gentleman in her mouth her hands on either side kind of manipulating two other guys and then what i found fascinating was the end when the guy who was telling the story barry clark was the character name jumps up on stage grabs her, (laughs) takes her off the stage. And then, uh, he wraps up his story out there at the cafe. And then we get this like weird scene of him driving and it becomes a sex scene from that. And it goes from like this, sex where everyone is watching to them kind of almost in a void. Like you don't see anything else. It's like this black background and kind of an interesting way to end the film after we've had so much spectacle and group sex to go to just the two of them alone
1: in sort of a loving embrace, if you will. And I believe Freulein has something she would like to interject. No pun intended.
2: <laughs> well, yes. Um, to answer Mike's inquiry is that it's actually in the Trappies scene if you did notice that she was actually riding the gentleman that was beneath her so she was while she was um going down on the one gentleman and jacking off the other two she was actually getting fucked by the gentleman below her so it was definitely she was enjoying herself too and there is a shot of that you see it in the slow motion um ejaculation scene
1: this was probably one of the first instances Like you pointed out earlier about how this was one of the first major porno films, this was probably one of the first instances of group sex where people really got to see that kind of thing.
3: Yeah, not only on stage, but also with the audience themselves, when they start to get into it, that becomes, say pretty widespread orgy of all the people that are there. And then we should probably say that this is, uh, it's very ironic because I recently watched uh, Eyes Wide Shut, you know, when they have that whole scene of everyone masked and going in and having this kind of sex orgy and everything. And you kind of get the same thing in this, where Barry and his buddy go into this club, they have to prove who they are and all this kind of stuff. And then you get some people wearing masks, some people not I don't really know what the distinction was between them. And then as the proceedings go on, the people that were wearing masks, most of them, except for one guy that I can think of, all have taken their masks off and are basically, you know, they've, they've taken themselves
1: out of that spectator role and now are performing, even though they're performing out in the audience. There is also something kind of for everybody in this. There is interracial sex. There is a plump woman. There is a transsexual. There is masturbation. The film kind of gives for any kind of relatively straight audience. There's lesbian sex. There's you know, male gay sex is the only thing that's not featured at some point in in Green Door.
2: Well, yes, definitely. And I think it has to go along with the idea that generally when it comes to pornography, Girl-on-girl girl, um, scenes are a lot more popular for um, the straight community than men-on-men. Men. And you see that a lot. It's just almost every fantasy of any man to see two women together. But the idea of two men together, especially in the 1970s, when homosexuality was in the DSM-IV, was that it was gross and it was a sin and it was just not accepted. Not only is this a first hardcore film to show um interracial sex well that's taboo but so is homosexual sex oddly enough i i guess it's prettier when we women make love to one another than two men so to me it wasn't very surprising because of the time i think today young audience would especially the pcs of the um lgbtq community would say oh my gosh but that's that's something i would have expected in a film from 1972 you would see lesbian acts but you wouldn't see game
1: at next mike how did you first encounter green door even if you didn't see it for years how was the first time you heard about behind the green door Oh, I, I hope you appreciate
3: this. The first time I ever heard about <laughs> Behind the Green Door was that awesome scene in Cannibal Run 2, I think it was. Yeah, it was Cannibal Run 2, where Jackie Chan and uh, Richard Keel are, you know, teamed up in that one, and uh, Jackie's watching Behind the Green Door uh, in their car.
2: Well, to be honest with you, it's kind of funny. It was not Cannibal Run, even though I have vague memories of that movie. The first time I ever actually heard of Behind the Green Door was the song by the Cramps that was singing Behind the Green Door. And I, for the life of me, cannot remember exactly what prompted me to look it up, but it was uh, referencing to the movie itself. And of course, then I just heard, oh, it's a porno from the 70s, you know, same old, lots of Bush, lots of missionary and all that fabulousness. But um, I finally saw the film not too long ago, and uh, so that's basically (laughs) mainstream music, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Rockabilly from The Cramps actually got me into this film also proves that a film like this definitely hit the mainstream when you have people referencing it, singing about it. There is an international metal group that actually rates a song referring to Behind the Green Door. So it's definitely made an impact, not just in the porn industry, but also mainstream. So it transcends that bridge.
1: I have to go with Mike. The first time I heard about it was Cannibal Run 2, because I remember my dad after I saw Cannibal Run 2, he explained to me what that was. So I'm in the same boat that Mike was with and Jackie Chan introduced me to Behind the Green Door.
2: You boys are definitely showing your age. Oh, oh yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> I think I might have been the
3: only one of us us three that was alive when Behind the Green Door came out. Uh, albeit, I might have been a zygote at the time.
1: We can't fail to mention something that Froilein alluded to was how Green Door just moved its way into mainstream culture. Green Door, along with Deep Throat, which came out a year earlier, turned into what is known as porno chic, where it was cool to go to the movies to see a porno film. You had Jack Nicholson taking Sammy Davis Jr. with a camera crew to go see Green Door and Deep Throat. These were playing at mainstream movie theaters. Moms and housewives, and they she'd take Dad out on a date to go see these movies. Other ones like the devil and Miss Jones were part of the porno chic. Do you guys think that that is something that would ever happen again, or was this just a sl- a slight little microcosm of people really throwing off the chains, as it was of having porno be this dirty little thing?
2: I would have to say it's more of a microcosm because, um, as you have witnessed, even with the last election, sex. Is now back to being very taboo perhaps from what I've experienced and witnessed even more so. 1972 was around the time of the sexual revolution. By the time I was produced <laughs> which was 1980 which was the very beginning of Reaganomics and the moral majority and all of a sudden sex became closeted again for people to actually be able to go out and freely see pornographic films in movie theaters, it's not gonna be as open as it was back then when Deep Throat and The Devil Miss Jones came out. People are still hiding that the fact that they enjoy pornography. We have the religious right, we have the extreme right reminding us that basically sex is for procreation, not recreation. We're getting into that unfortunate mindset again. So maybe not in this generation, but hopefully in the future we could get back to the days of old, be able to go out there and enjoy a sex film at a movie theater. So hopefully that uh, will definitely happen.
3: Yeah, I kind of think it was a perfect storm between all of the sexual liberation that we had going on at the time. I mean, we're coming off of the 60s, and not only do you have that, but then you also have this kind of we don't necessarily know what is going to sell at movie theaters kind of mentality as well. And this is kind of the rise of the independent movement a little bit. So, because obviously these kind of films were not being funded by major studios and when they were, they were disasters, but these were independent filmmakers that were doing these things. Of course, we can talk about the way that the mob kind of moved in and really started to take some of the money out of pockets of these filmmakers. And it became more of a, almost an organized crime kind of thing but uh as it was it was uh, very much this kind of uh the, the the gap was there no pun intended and these guys came in and we have films that are being made about sex during the time of the sexual revolution i don't know fraulein reference you know the pendulum has kind of really swung back quite a way from that i don't know if we will ever swing back to what I would consider the the correct way of thinking that sex is not this dirty thing that we need to keep closeted, that we should be a little bit more open with our sexuality and then, and have this. And also I think the other thing that comes into this is the whole idea of, you know, free love. And this was, you know, we can talk about STDs that were available at this time, but this is what a decade or more before the AIDS scare really even started to raise its ugly head. So this was, The golden age of porn also was the golden age of free love and not having to worry about um, dying from sex.
2: I think what also helped the popularity of this movie is the very fact that Marilyn Chambers, who was virtually unknown, was actually a model. She was the ivory soap girl for ivory snow soap and detergent. The slogan that was under the brand said 99 and 44th, one hundred percent pure. And when she got the role The Mitchell brothers saw a publicity opportunity by advertising beyond the green door and putting Marilyn Chambers face on a poster saying the all American girl, but also 99 and 44th, 100 percent impure. And then Procter and Gamble went after them. Because of the advertising materials featuring her, it all became this major scandal. And then when Procter & Gamble pulled all that advertisement, it even added more hype to the film. So that's another means of how they took someone from the mainstream, from a a model, from a product that just about everybody in the American homes had, and all of a sudden, you know, she's getting blasted in the face with psychedelic ejaculation. So that definitely helped out the movie make as much money as it actually did.
1: And then we also can't ignore something else, the fact that prior to Green Door you were not able to copyright a pornographic movie or pornographic material. It was not considered art. When the mob tried to move in and steal Green Door, basically what they did is, because Deep Throat was made by by mob filmmakers – They wanted Green Door as well. They just bootlegged the print. They were showing it all across the country, and none of the money was going to the Mitchells. The mob was keeping it all. The Mitchells actually fought for our right to copyright pornography. So Green Door is the the benchmark in that, really what it comes down to as well. That also played into the marketing. I think that's why Procter & Gamble didn't get very far in their lawsuit is the fact that when they initially sued Green Door, it was an uncopyrightable work. By the time the lawsuit went to court, it was a copyrighted work of art the same as The Godfather was. So in that, in that regard, The Mitchells, who by all accounts, I, I know a few people that knew them personally, that, that Showtime TV movie Rated X, people have told me that that version of The Mitchells is not too far off from the real shooting guns off and doing so much coke you, you wake up four states away and you don't know how you got there kind of people. Fräulein, you brought up the psychedelic cum shot. We we can't ignore one of the (laughs) iconic images from this movie, and that is the seven-minute-long psychedelic, tinted, music-in-the-background, slow-motion cum shot into Marilyn Chambers' face. To me, it was a little long. That, to me, is what defined this movie as art.
3: And you know what's funny is that the first heterosexual sex act that we see there is no cum shot so i was thinking oh well this is kind of refreshing that we're not going to get this whole fetishization of ejaculation and then (laughs) and then we turn around and the next sex act it we get that amazing uh psychedelic scene and yeah that is just it, it does go on for a little long it's, uh, I don't know, it was kind of pretty at times, and I did like the music, uh, but yeah, there were times where it was like when we kept seeing the same slow motion shot of the uh, the one penis going to town, it was like, oh, okay, you know, I've seen this before, can we at least, you know, can you at least throw like a red filter on, the- oh, there we go, good, it's, it's there, it's a red filter now, and then we get the, the multicolored jism going across the screen, so, all right, right on.
1: I think that scene was made for people that were high. This is 1972, so you have to take that into consideration, Mike. This was made for people that were high. All right, fair
3: enough. You
2: would, you would, definitely, you would definitely have to be high to be able to sit there. It was like Andy Warhol with Penetration. You're just sitting there, and you're, I started, first time I ever saw that scene, I was looking at my watch like, Jesus, God. what? Okay, we're still going. Oh, there we go. And the music just sounded very low, and it was very brooding, and it really set a tone of what was going on. To me, it would also set a tone of what's going on with this woman. She's finally experiencing a very sensual and sexual act, that in the beginning, when she's speaking to that older woman who started massaging her, said, you're going to experiencing rapture. And I think that's what it was for her, a cum shot in the face, nearly missing her eye, was just that rapture she was also feeling pleasure herself not just the man who was you know coming on her face if you look at her expression you know she was really enjoying it which is also fantasy for men because men also want to see women enjoying that gargling the semen and all that stuff but it was tastefully done rather than shoving a cock down her throat you know it's just oh here i'm gonna just sprinkle you with a little bit of my cock vomit there you go have fun
1: I absolutely agree. Now, I think we should also talk about the rape allegations that that this film has had leveled at it since its release. People say this film endorses rape because this woman is kidnapped and initially violated more or less against her will. She doesn't fight it, but she just kind of lets it happen. A lot of people say this is a pseudo-rape film. I disagree. I actually kind of see what the Mitchells were going for with this whole thing.
2: Speaking as a fetishist and an ethical sadist, as well as an ethical slut. When it comes to uh, the subject of forcible rape, I take it very seriously, but watching this film, it was definitely not what the Mitchells were trying to promote. It's not pro-rape. I didn't see it as that. I don't see that she was drugged. I don't see that she was coerced. The kidnapping, I think, was exercising a fantasy because there is rape fantasy in um, alternative sex. And there's also kidnap fantasies. I think the fact that she didn't fight it adds to the illusion that clearly this is not real. Because the difference between (laughs) actual rape, notice I didn't say legitimate, actual rape versus rape fantasy is that it is consensual. She didn't fight it. She obviously didn't say no. And I just do not. I I just think that going the whole pro-rape thing is just taking it a little too far to say for anyone to say that the Mitchells were promoting rape is clearly a slander and it's not right. And I think it's also in the main a mentality of men being brutes, women being victims. That's stereotyping as well. Oh, she's a beautiful, helpless girl and she's being gangbang lesbians and a black man and all this stuff. It's like, really? Or, is this what we're really going with? So, um, and I could talk a blue streak about that, but seriously, no, it is, I, as a woman who's also feminist, that was not promoting rape. And I say it right here, right now, that's not rape.
1: Do you believe it was endorsing rape or just giving, giving a weapon to the enemies of porn who were going to find something to bitch about anyway?
2: Yeah, I
3: think it was definitely just, uh, people looking for something. I mean, I'm, I'm very curious as far as the opening of the film the way we get her driving along and going to this kind of resort and having the uh, the main desk eye calling and saying, you know, she's here and she's there alone and waiting. And we have that scene where she's kind of out on that uh, very scenic balcony and, you know, just sitting there waiting. I would you could almost posit just as easily as you could say this is is pro-rape you could easily turn it around and say maybe this was hired maybe this was her fantasy that she was making true maybe she was going out to the chateau or to the resort in order to make this happen because it seemed very well orchestrated it didn't seem like that she was being stalked or anything like that it seemed like this was something that was fairly well planned out and i wouldn't be surprised i wouldn't you know put it I wouldn't say that it would be out of the realm of possibilities that she was the one that kind of set this up for herself.
1: I actually am very curious to read the original photocopied and passed out in the underground story that this is based on. I don't know if you guys were ever able to track it down. I could not track down a copy online of the original story. But admit it, both of you are a little bit curious to actually read the original story. I'm very curious because the only one that I could find
3: was the O. Henry story, and that definitely didn't have anything to do with Marilyn Chambers.
2: I am more than excited to actually find a copy to own it, to read it, to live it, to love it. I think it would be very interesting to know that a movie that continues to influence and make money and still be the topic of discussion, it all came down to a simple story that was passed around evolved and continues to evolve and educate and bring people at, around my age to actually see this film i definitely will make this a mission to actually find this script
1: there was also a sequel called behind the green door the sequel and i believe it was 1986 that didn't do nearly as well as the original green door am i correct freyline you said you looked into this one
2: yes um sadly it it didn't have the same oomph as the original, but again, it was a landmark film. It wasn't necessarily by the Mitchells, but it definitely made a landmark because, as Mike had mentioned earlier about the AIDS outbreak in 19, in the 1980s, Behind the Green Door 2, literally just called the sequel, was actually the first safe sex-themed porn you will see, unlike the original, the actors using condoms and other forms of birth control and all sorts of protection. And that is also very refreshing because during the 80s from the whole the AIDS epidemic, and still being called, quote unquote, the gay disease. You have straight men and straight women and so forth using birth control because, hey, it can happen to you too. And that speaks loudly to someone like me who is a member of the LGBTQ community. You know, in 1986, they realized it's not just the queers getting it in the bathhouse. It could be anybody. So even at that time, they had their heads out of their asses and were playing it, you know, to be better safe than sorry. So it really, to me personally, it doesn't matter that it didn't make as much money or it wasn't as popular, but it really spoke in high volumes about safety um, being sane and consensual in your acts. So in 1986, to start using condoms in your por- in pornography was, I applaud it.
1: Mike, since I haven't seen the sequel, I don't really have anything to add. Do you have anything to add w- with the sequel? No, I don't. I also spoke with chronicler of adult Bill Margold to get his take on Behind the Green Door.
0: Green Door is one of the two films in 1972, when it came out, that essentially made this industry sociologically acceptable. The other, of course, being Deep Throat. In fact I'm involved now with deep throat the sex play sex scandal play green door has a i have a couple of personal references to it. I was in San Francisco in nineteen seventy two august of seventy two when Green Door had its sort of premiere and they were offering free screenings of it and I went to see it at the O'Farrell theater in an afternoon at twelve o'clock in the afternoon and it had some the sound wasn't very good but it didn't really need to be but then of course the movie's all about kidnapping and rape theoretically so i was watching it and i was okay i was okay with it i i was amused at ben davidson the uh, oakland raider was in it popping a football but where the adult entertainment industry absolutely raped the innocence of america was when johnny keys comes out from behind the screen with those huge teeth and that big dick and I said, oh, my God. It was about, that was at the very moment when I said, I want to be in this business. I want to I be on the screen. I want to be in movies. I think that movie ignited my passion to wind up as an adult performer more than any other movie. Well, I hadn't seen that many of them. There hadn't been that many. And I had not seen Deep Throat yet. Up in San Francisco, the unique circumstances watching it, the history of the film taking the ivory soap girl and turning, turning, you know, raping perfection, basically, absolutely knocked the door open and kicked it off its hinges. And the world was never the same after Green Door. It's not a great film, but it's an interestingly enough, you're going to watch it because it's monumentally staged with the orgy at the end of it. And it made, absolutely made history and deserved to make history. So that is, it's, An audacious. I think the perfect term for that movie is audacious.
1: All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we will be back to discuss the 1981 classic, Café Flesh.
0: to win a chance to butt bang your daughter's tight virgin cherry ass. To call her number, six six.
3: She's a you for days. we got. It's just a piece of we got
0: Friday and the we got girls who <laughs> pee and poo. guys who'd love to monkey your shoes. we got moms so much <laughs>
1: sense, to feel everything but pleasure. In a world destroyed, a mutant universe, survivors break down to those who can and those who can't. 99% are sex negatives, call them erotic casualties. They want to make love, but the mere touch of another makes them violently ill. The rest, the lucky 1%, are sex positives. Those whose libidos escaped unscathed. After the nuclear kiss, the positives remained to love, to perform, and the others, well, we negatives can only watch, can only come to Cafe Flesh. So Cafe Flesh, the 1981 film that tried to be a little bit a, a cut above what a what a porn really was. Before we go into the film, what was your initial reaction to this, Mike, when you first saw Café Flesh? Yeah, I was really taken aback, but in a very good way.
3: I just kind of fell in love with this film the first time I saw it, just because it is so different and so unexpected. And I'd really never seen porn that had tried to mix genres before by being this kind of post-apocalyptic sci-fi Pornographic film. It's like, wow, this is kind of right up my alley. So it was, uh, it really blew my socks off.
1: Fräulein, your initial reaction—not maybe not how you feel now, but your initial reaction <laughs> when you first saw Cafe Flesh.
2: The first time I saw Cafe Flesh, or any part of the film, was actually um, the one scene where you have the woman having sex with—I I guess he was dressed as a rat—and you have the babies in the background just banging on something i saw that scene while i was attending a seminar called porn you can salute to um held by screw smart all i could remember was holy shit! i need to own this film because they describe it as art house porn i just thought the colors the grittiness the fact that it's post-apocalyptic certain group of people can have sex compared to those who can't even touch themselves because it makes them violently sick. I thought this this is one hell of a story. I would love to watch the rest of it and see how it pans out. And I searched high and low for this film. I was able to score a copy. Much like Michael, I too fell in love with it because it's not a stupid story. It actually is witty. And it makes you think what could possibly happen if this could happen to you, where just sexual urges can make you sick. So I thought it was hysterical. It did try to throw in the avant-garde, artsy sort of thing. Mixed it with sci-fi, of course, but there was a storyline that actually flowed, and I appreciated it. I still do, and it's, I loved it very, very much.
1: My thing is, and I know this is totally going to out me as the giant nerd that I am, I so got into the story, I kind of wish they would have stopped having sex and gone more into the relationships. I wanted to know more about this world. Because they, they drop you these little hints. When, when, a, when a certain drifter, for lack of a better term, comes to the cafe and he offers a bird as payment to get in, everyone's surprised it's still alive and that's never touched upon again. I want to know this. I, I'm such a stupid nerd. I got more into the story than I did the sex. Is that, is that wrong of me, Mike? I don't think it was
3: wrong, Josh. No, because, I mean, especially the the sex really isn't even that sexy it's not that sensual i mean really there are scenes where you've got these oil derricks in the background and you have this uh, really chunk a chunk of what the oil derricks would sound like and you have this whole like mechanical thing going on and really that's what a lot of this is is this kind of mechanical sex on stage where it's it it really, the pacing of the sex scenes isn't even typical to what we would think of in any kind of other porn film. You know, like, cum shots come too fast, or, like, there's a lesbian scene that's over within, you know, just a few minutes, whereas, like, lesbian scenes are generally the time where you can get up Go to the restroom, do your taxes, uh, maybe you know, place a couple orders on Amazon. Come back and it's still going. It's usually just fodder for a porn film to just have a really long scene because there's no like you know, cum shot to it. But in this case, it was just like, wow, that scene was over really quickly. And yeah, the same thing went with so much of the sex where it wasn't the really the the meat of what was going
1: on. It was what was going on off of the stage which i found to be very fascinating to me there was also this aspect again going to my nerdiness i kept thinking okay if people can't have sex except for this one percent of sex positives is the human race dead are people still getting pregnant are they gonna to me this is where the sequels should have gone and we'll get to the sequels in a little bit which are awful Freulein, am i wrong that i really wish the story had been more fleshed out and this had been a no pun intended, straight movie rather than a porno?
2: Well, I could see in a sense why nerds like yourself would be disappointed because you wanted story. And just remember one thing, when when I hear you uh, talking about the lack of story, it reminds me of why porno movies were porno movies. Uh, Again, at Screw Smart, when we were listening to people younger than myself and my friends talking about how ridiculous the storyline is, try to remember, it's not the story that is trying to be sold, it's the sex. If you read um, a magazine such as Playboy, first you're reading about stereo instructions, you turn the page, oh, there's a freaky four-way, and then you read about the State of the Union, you turn the page, and oh, wow, doggy style. And it's because uh, text was a means to mass produce and distribute the nudity on on the page without breaking any laws. And the same went for pornography. In this case with Cafe Flesh, even though the storyline was good, it's that they didn't wanna keep focusing on the storyline, they want you to focus on the sex. And the storyline, of course, was just a vehicle to mass distribute penetration scenes, cunniling scenes, comb shots, and so forth. And the reason I feel that the sex scenes were not as saucy, I guess you could say, as most pornos, is because it is very mechanical because it is serving a purpose. These aren't couples who are, in, who are making love. These are people who are legally, in this post-apocalyptic world, being forced by, well, the enforcers, to have public sex because the only means of gratification that the rest of the population has is voyeurism. And they're getting off that way. So basically, they don't have the time. To me, it's like you're being forced to do this. You don't have the time to make it cute or romantic. Get in there, fuck your brains out, come and leave. Next act. To me, that's what it is. It was serving a purpose. I guess you could say just merely it was serving a purpose and it's kind of like customer service in retail you just gotta keep smiling and keep doing what you're doing whether it's bringing somebody up for a sale on cornflakes or you know oh well I better fuck and get this cum shot ready because I have an audience watching and they are the customer That's just for me. And the very fact that you know so little also about what happened with the nuclear fallout. And There's, oh, they're surprised that there's a live bird. It's because to me, just hearing, oh, well, there's a bird and it's actually alive gives me an idea in the back of my head that, wow, the world really did come down in a really bad way. I guess that's an issue with American films. We we take an idea and we have to pick it apart and analyze it. You know, I think the very small bits and pieces, such as the live bird or the fallout or the noise in the background, how everything is dark, gives that mood that the world is basically coming to an end.
1: And see, the the one thing I'll disagree with you on that is, this was one of the first hardcores that was re-edited into an R rating to be shown on HBO and Showtime. So that tells me, at least the distributor, maybe not the filmmakers, but the distributor thought that... This wasn't just a vehicle to try and sell the sex that they were trying to sell the story, that they were trying to sell the characters, because this film played on HBO quite often in an R-rated form, which I'll admit I've never seen. I've never been able to track down a R-rated copy, but I'd like to just to compare it, really.
2: It's that you just look at the small details and it lets your imagination run wild of what could possibly happen rather than sit there and say, no, I want you to tell me everything that's going on. And I think also that the that the relationships between Nick and Lana also, to me, at least speaks volumes because the speak softly and carry a big stick Well, say very little, but you can still get a whole picture. You know, it's trying to exercise your brain and let you know, at least it lets me think about what could possibly happen. But that's just me. You know, I just want certain details. I don't need a whole strung out sort of thing. But, you know, to each your own. I'm not trying to yuck your yum.
3: We had mentioned, you know, the the whole idea of, you know, the whole coupling idea and how this is kind of uh, setting it apart by having our performers up on stage and having the sex just as part of the stage. But we should probably talk a little bit about the love story that happens between Nick and Lana, and and just the way that, that everyone comes to this club to see these performances, even though they can't have any sort of pleasure... I like the way that our MC, Max, uh, melodramatic, really kind of makes fun of the audience and in turn is kind of making fun of us, you know, coming to a movie. Uh, you know, you can say that this was originally shown th- theatrically. So coming into a theater and being that audience, that audience of degenerate sex negatives who I love those, uh, those reaction shots from the audience. Some of them are entranced some of them are horrified some of them are disgusted but nobody can take their eyes off of it and i love the way that this kind of speaks to that whole idea of voyeurism and the interaction of the audience the real audience us and also the audience of the sex negatives out you know at the cafe flesh looking at this and really josh i have to give you some big kudos on this by putting these two films together behind the green door and cafe flesh because they really kind of it's it's almost like an updating really cafe flesh I mean it's almost a decade later and to see how far porn had come and just kind of dealing with some similar subjects as far as the way that we have these you know the the sex acts taking place on stage and in behind the green door it breaks out into an orgy in the audience but here they can't. It's almost like they're on anabuse and have just been, you know, given a drink. They start to gag and they throw up. Or it's like, you know, Clockwork Orange, the way that uh, Alex reacts when it comes to uh, to violence. They cannot participate at all. And I just love that kind of uh, dichotomy between behind the green door audience and the Cafe Flesh audience.
1: And then there's also the fact that the director of this Rince Dream, real name Steven Sayadian, who also made the Night Dream series, Party Dollar Go-Go, the 1989 Cabinet of Dr. Caligari remake, he has made almost an entire career out of daring you to get turned on by his porno films. And I think that both works for, like you pointed out, the audience in the movie and us. Because these sex scenes in this movie are so, I think, intentionally unerotic, he's daring you to get a hard-on. Watching that rat fuck the mom in the 1950s setting with the giant bearded babies banging bones on their high chairs behind them that's i think that's a steven say thing and then mike you also brought up the love story and so did frulein i i think we we saw that nick and lana really did love one another which is why i got so pissed at lana at the end when she basically betrayed him for her own sexual needs and then when max is laughing at nick I hated Max. I didn't want Max to win. In a storytelling sense, the exact opposite of the ending you wanted to happen on an emotional level. And I respect Sayadian for that.
2: But also, if you think of it this way, if you look at it, and for our listeners, I, I personally don't see it as a betrayal per se, but more along the lines of what could be called healthy selfish. Now, let's take a look at Lana and Nick. The one thing I didn't like about Nick was how much of a whiner he came off as. You know, one minute he's talking about how he was the big man on campus, and now all he does is bellyache about going to Cafe Flesh night after night. And that's all I got from him was this boo-hoo. Whereas you have Lana, who is actually making the best out of a bad situation, and she likes it. She's enjoying it. And instead of sitting there like a pit of despair, she's like, well, you know what? I enjoy watching the couples bang each other. I'm going to continue to go. She loves Nick very much to the point where she's hiding the fact that she is a sex positive. She was sacrificing her personal needs to be with this man child who's done nothing. As I said before, he's done nothing but complain through the whole thing. And I think that's another reason why I thought it was funny that Max was laughing at him at the end when Lana started touching herself. And then all of a sudden she's like, I'm sorry, but I need to take care of myself too. I love you, Nick. I really do, but I'm a pause. I'm going to go up up there and I'm going to get fucked by the girl. I'm going to get fucked by the dude and it's going to be awesome. And to me, again, that's, You call it betrayal, but after a while, you know, you're sacrificing yourself. Sometimes you can't do that anymore. She gave into her own needs. To me, at least, that's what it is. I mean, seriously, think about it.
3: I love that the guy who everybody is waiting for you know throughout the film you get news that Johnny Rico is coming and it's just this big deal you know they there's even a break kind of between you know this really takes place over the period of two days and there's a break between you know day one and day two and you get that little kind of uh everyone's standing around and that's when we see uh, a very young Richard Belzer doing his whole shtick and everything and I love this whole thing where it's like Johnny Rico Johnny Rico and I have to think that they were smart enough to make this a uh, very open reference to Starship Troopers, because that's our main character's name in that, too, Johnny Rico. And I love when he shows up. He's just so effing cool with his shades on and stuff. I don't even remember if, if I saw his penis or not. He was just like, Always there, just like so suave and everything, never even says a word. He's just like this more of like an elemental force who shows up. But, and I I did want to touch on Max, um, not literally, but just talk a little bit about him. That whole scene where moms, the owner of the club, uh, kind of humiliates him. I love that scene. And I want to think that he is sex positive but he doesn't have the equipment to do anything about it so it's got to be even more frustrating for him than the sex negatives that
1: are at the club i can see what you're saying there but i just i hated the max character because of what a douchebag he was and i hate when douchebags in movies win so i did not like to see max not only show nick up but then max literally get the last laugh in i wanted nick to go punching him in the dick that's what i wanted to happen I didn't mind that he kind of won. And for me, the real winner
3: was Lana. Uh, I know that you felt that it was kind of a betrayal, but for me, it's like, she kind of is that uh, to go back to green door. She's kind of that Marilyn chambers character where all of a sudden she is becoming this fully realized sexualized being. I know it might not be for the best day three of this thing when she's up there as a performer now and always has to be a performer is doing her thing. And she is, able to get up there and have sex and have fun and just enjoy herself as much as she possibly can and really that she's getting away
1: from nick hey that's great well and then since you brought up lana we we, we can't ignore the fact that lana is played by although she's credited as pia snow future scream queen michelle bauer who would go on a bunch of quote unquote legitimate cinema and what's really funny is she made three adult features this the other Stephen Sayadian film, Night Dreams, and the hardcore film, Bad Girls, all of which she did under the Pia Snow name. She does not count any of these on her filmography. She claims, even on camera, her first film was 1983's The Tomb. Now, to be fair, she claims, at least in this one, she had no penetration in this, that it was all stunt asses and stunt mouths. So I was looking during her sex scene with Johnny Rico and with the girl, you never actually see her face in any of those, except for the 169 scene with the girl, which is clearly another actress in a wig. So I'm I'm inclined to believe she actually refused to do the penetration in this movie.
2: You have to take chances, I think, during this film. Or you said that the tomb. She, she claims that the tomb is her first film. She wants to deny it that she ever did anything adult like this because she didn't want her B movie career to be tainted. How, uh, and you get that a lot, you know, but look, at Steve at uh, Sylvester Stallone was in a porno. Has it hurt his career any since that came out? I don't think so. It could also be that it's more forgiving for Sly to be the Italian stallion, getting a hummer, rather than a woman enjoying sexual liberation. And again, it could go back to the idea that it's okay for men to do it, but not so much for women. So she wants to keep it hush hush no she did not have relations with that woman she did not inhale and so forth and it's also just i guess it's it's really sad she should be able to embrace that and say yes i was in cafe flesh that has a cult status that is very interesting and hysterical and sensual and female empowerment definitely at the end she wants to keep it hush that's on her but we know at least That the tomb was definitely not her first film well that's that's her prerogative i'm just gonna sit back smile and make it look natural but we know we know it's you
3: well yeah i definitely see that there's got to be a double standard there i mean you know had there are so many cases where you know it comes out later on that an actress or somebody has done something quote-unquote bad and it does adversely affect their career where there is, you know, I mean, Jean-Claude Van Damme has done porn. There are several, you know, male actors that have done porn or, or bad stuff. And Hey, that's, that's fine. They can pick up and, and move on. But, but it's kind of funny then, because then I wonder, well, did they hire Bauer for her acting ability? Because there's really not a whole lot of great acting in this film. She's probably one of the top actors in the movie but like uh the the girl that plays angel oh my god just what a performance it really kind of reminded me and i'm wondering if it was intentional the way that these actors were kind of very stilted it reminded me a lot of like john waters films with the way that the deliveries are in some of those early films of his where mom's
1: definitely reminded me of a john waters character yeah oh yeah oh yeah
3: (laughs) (laughs) well
2: uh, to talk about stilted um i don't know what john waters films you were watching because a lot of john waters earlier films such as multiple maniacs pink flamingos i thought at least the deliveries of the lines were a lot more dramatic compared to a dirty shame or serial mom or anything like that whether or not for her acting career they all reminded me of like the hardcore version of Napoleon Dynamite. They're the sex negatives, but they also have Asperger's syndrome. So, um, especially with Nick, he's always just talking this and blah, 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 and Lana just talking as if she's trying to remember her lines. So it's not whether or not they hired her for her acting abilities. Everyone does these sort of things their very first time because, hey, it's a gig. But then her career took off, so therefore that that job that really got her going is like, what? Who? Oh, that wasn't me. That was some bimbo named P.S. Snow.
1: Well, and then th- we also have to look at the pedigree behind this film. As Mike already pointed out, it has a cameo by a pretty much then-unknown Richard Belzer in a non-sex role. He's almost unrecognizable if you're not looking for him. But then it's also written and directed by Stephen Sayadian, or co-written, I should say, Cinematographer is credited as FX Pope. It's actually Francis DeLea, who would also direct Stephen Sayadian's Night Dreams, but would also go on to a career making music videos for bands such as Wall of Voodoo, directing episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, Max Headroom, War of the Worlds, the series. He would go on to a mainstream TV career. It was written by the credited Herbert W. Day, who is actually Jerry Stahl, who has gone on to be a huge writer for ALF, CSI. He wrote Bad Boys 2. He's a huge writer, and he was played by Ben Stiller in the movie Permanent Midnight because of all his drug issues. This film has quite a pedigree behind it, yet most people I've spoken to have only heard about it in Hushed Whispers or they read about it in an old psychotronic issue. Why do you think this film, with the pedigree it has, as is unseen as it tends to be today, Fräulein?
2: Very simple. It's porn. Like, I, I'd never heard of it, honestly, until I went to that seminar at Screw Smart, where it was called porn that you can salute to. But again, I think it's kind of hushed because, who knows, maybe the pre- the pedigree behind it kind of want to just shy away from it because, well, again, it's the stigma of it being a fuck film. That's at least the idea that I'm getting because, again, sex is taboo no matter whether it's straight gay um, uh, just anything it's it's definitely on the hush and some people going back to Michelle Bauer they would just rather not have that on their resume because they don't they don't want that to affect any future prospects again that's just my idea or my my, uh, hypothesis because I'm surrounded by people who feel that because of their religion, because of their job, because of the fact that they have families and a certain just lifestyle that, that they can't admit to the fact that they watch porn, let alone be in a porn. That's where I just think it is. Humble beginnings are not so humble in the eyes of the people who do it.
3: Well, I can almost see this movie as being too weird for people looking for regular quote-unquote porn films you know it's i can see this as being very shocking to somebody who's going into a, a theater looking for a stroke film and getting this which is you know this very highly avant-garde adult feature and i think really it was uh there's another audience for it that has yet to really get it i mean this was featured in you know danny perry's cult film books and that's where it belongs is this is a cult film. This is a midnight movie. This is something that folks who are more into Eraserhead and El Topo and Pink Flamingos and like your Picture Show should be experiencing than the guy who thinks he's going to go into the theater and have a quick yank, because this is great. I mean, there's some amazing stuff going on in here. I love the storyline. I love, you know, I know that you talked about the whole idea of wanting more of the post-apocalyptic world, but... I kinda like that they don't give you everything. They don't hand it to you on a silver platter and you really have to look for it. Try to figure it out on your own. Like how many years has it been? Okay, well Nick at one point says, you know, ten years ago I could do this and that. So trying to put these pieces together, I think, is great. And I love too the I mean, the writing is so intelligent and I love like the dialogue that some of these people have, like the Bosco, the bartender. I love his dialogue where it's kind of straight out of a 1940s film noir. And even when Johnny Rico shows up, he's like, hey, he looks like a young Mitchum, you know, and it's like, oh, this is great stuff. So I I, I think that the the audience is there, but they have yet to really, you know, some people know of this film, but I think more people need to. And I, I think it's great that we're talking about this movie.
1: Hopefully more folks will track it down and check it out. It is currently available on DVD. You can you can get it on DVD pretty much anywhere. But then there was one company that I guess thought that this film had enough of a cult following. When VCA, the late 80s and early 90s, produced two sequels to Café Flesh, originally titled Café Flesh 2 and 3, VCA seemed to have missed the point or, and I might be reaching a little bit here, porn itself had moved into almost self-parody to the point where There is almost no story left. It's basically just one sex scene after another for two straight hours of people in post-apocalyptic garb and post-apocalyptic background. They don't concentrate on the story hardly at all in Café Flesh 2 and 3. Do you think by the time they made those in, say, 89, 90, porn had just moved to the point where we don't want a story. We just want, hey, I can't pay for the pizza. Let's blow the guy Or do you think it was just VCA missed the point of the original, Mike? You know, I'm not really sure. You know, it's you would think that
3: they could have done so much more with this. I mean, it's amazing that this is, you know, early 80s. We brought up the AIDS epidemic earlier, and really this movie almost predates AIDS. It could be really seen as like a great AIDS metaphor. And I imagine that had they kept on that track for a sequel, it would have almost been too much. You know, it would have been too real for, you know, the person who doesn't want to think about the real world when they go to see a porn movie. They just want to see the pizza guy come in and bang some chick. So I can see where they would have really dropped that thread and just gone for the sex in the sequels.
2: Porn itself moved. I think... The golden age of pornography was what we're talking about now, but I think it is the days of old officially. I feel that our attention spans have definitely lapsed. I mean, we now live in a culture where it needs to be bigger, better, faster, stronger. We don't want to have to go through the process. We want the end results without going through the process. That's why there's hardly any communication. Between people, that's why we have the internet. You know, don't call somebody and ask how they're doing. Just look them up on Facebook. And when it comes to pornography, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Forget this whole storyline thing. What the hell is that to begin with? And just as Mike says, just open the door. Oh, we ordered this pizza, but we don't have any money. Perhaps I can pay you in some other way. They go, they just go straight for the banging. And I think that. Sadly, porn has lost some luster. I've seen some pornos where they're not even trying anymore. They're just like, hi, I'm here to fuck. And that's all it is. So you have movies such as Deep Throat, Debbie Does Dallas, um, The Devil and Miss Jones, Behind the Green Door and Cafe Flesh as examples of what they were really trying to do was have a story and to make it entertaining. But some people just don't want that anymore. They don't want to have to worry about whose character's feelings got hurt. They just want to know whose ass just got plowed. That's that's the way that I see it.
3: Well, yeah, well, it's like we have these compilations of cum shots, and that's all you get. Two hours, just guys coming. Okay, yeah, there's not even the sex. It's just the cum shots. I don't know how much more specialized and
1: the final moment you can get other than that. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Well, that's what disappointed me so much when I, cause I was excited when I found out there, there's two sequels. All right. And I started watching them and I'm like, they just look like an average porno with weird costumes. And that to me is not what cafe flesh was, but that seemed to be what VCA seemed to think that's what cafe flesh was. And I was a little irked and I felt a little talked down to from VCA for that.
2: Well, if you think about the old television series, Friday the 13th, the series, when it came out in 1987, being a child of horror, I was so excited thinking, oh, my gosh, they made a a television series of one of my most favorite films. And then you watch it and you think they just stole the name. It has nothing to do with Jason Voorhees or Cam Crystal Lake or anything like that. Mother? Oh, no. God damn it, I was ripped off. And with Café Flesh 2 and 3, it should be no surprise that they've dropped the ball on the whole story. They used the name as a means to being able to sell because Café Flesh being so popular, being a midnight movie, they thought, we can totally cash in with the name. Much like with the Friday 13th, the series ripoff, that's what I think they did with Café Flesh 2 and 3. We don't care that the storyline is not even remotely close. We don't care about continuity. We just care about people being interested in seeing the film purely based on the fact that it's being considered a sequel just because you add a 2 or a 3 behind the name. So I think it was cunning for the uh, filmmakers to do that, but also a major letdown.
1: You know what's ironic? Francis DeLea, the cinematographer, One of the projects he'd move on to for Paramount is he directed numerous episodes of Friday the 13th, the series.
2: Oh, Jesus Christ. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. That is hysterical.
1: Because, yeah, so he actually moved on to Friday the 13th, the series as well. Because he he basically went and worked for Paramount, which did War of the Worlds and Star Trek The Next Generation as well. So he basically just worked for the Paramount syndication division. Bill Margold is a chronicler of the adult scene. Let's see what he thinks of Café Flesh.
0: Well, Cafe Flesh was I I wrote basically putting a perfect set of tits into a Bob wire bra. It's not a happy movie and it had it tries to it has too many pseudo messages. It has a beautiful cast of people, but it was almost like a film trying to get even with the medium it was made for. And Sadian or whatever he calls himself, Rince Dream, and his partner put together this somewhat mean spirited and I think relatively unattractive motion picture remember that I had already seen the movie that preceded it which was legendary I'm thinking of Night Dreams Night Dreams was preceded it and I expected quite frankly another Night Dreams because Night Dreams is one of the most incendiary movies ever made with an absolutely lethal performance by Dorothy LeMay I can't remember anybody in Cafe Flesh doing anything but being unhappy it's a very unhappy film. It's it's beautifully done, but it takes itself so seriously. If you start taking sex that seriously, you might as well cut off your dick, because it it's one of the most anti-erotic films I've ever seen. And I don't know if you're going to try and defend it on being erotic, but can you remember anything at all about it being erotic? To use the term flesh for flesh, uh, I don't know if these people really knew what they wanted. Cult film for its time, of its time, and by its time. I don't think that the world would want another one. They tried to be unique. They succeeded. But they also, basically, they gave you a wet dream of sulfuric acid.
1: So what we're basically saying is find these two films. Find Behind the Green Door. Find Cafe Flesh on DVD. Both are readily available. These are films to look for these are films that will give you a new appreciation for adult if you did not already have such at the same time we hope to continue to bring you films like this on this series that you probably have never even heard of
2: I think it would be vital to actually watch these two films if you're a fan of porn Definitely watch these these have to be if they're in my collection They most likely should be in yours because this is where the porn of today has been birthed So it's it's gratifying. It's wonderful to watch the evolution and to be also be able to openly discuss the evolution of the porn industry and perhaps make interesting predictions of where it could go
3: Yeah, I think that uh, of course these. Two films should be watched, and if anything, I think watching them back-to-back would be uh, a really good idea, just because they do really speak to this whole idea of voyeurism, and really they're kind of this, uh, you know, I hate to use the word meta, but they're like this meta-commentary on us as viewers, uh, voyeurs, and appreciating what we see on stage and on the screen. So I think they're a really very good compliment to one another, and uh, I would definitely take the time to track these down and I mean Cafe Flesh it's it's a must see for me it's one of those films that just it stands out from anything else that you might have seen or had any kind of
1: preconceptions of we hope you'll tune in to the next episode and we will see you later at <laughs>